Good morning, church. How are you guys today? Good morning. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm thankful for your guys' hospitality. We, uh, we rolled in late, and uh, you guys came right beside us. And uh, I think part of that is just the knowledge of what it's like having little kids and packed in a minivan and just trying your best to maintain sanity as you go throughout the week. But you guys have been so gracious with us even just for the past 15 minutes. So I thank you for that very much. Um, everything Pastor Justin, right? Pastor Justin said is absolutely true. Uh, I am the pastor of families at Green Pond Bible Chapel. Uh, I see it as my personal calling to see from zero all the way up to 18, and even those above 18 years old come to the knowledge of uh, the saving knowledge of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I was very thankful to see the efforts appear to not just recognize those who are moving up to youth group, but to pray for them and to encourage them that this is something that they can do now. So again, thank you for that example. Um, But we are looking at Psalm 32. I was talking with Pastor Michael, and uh, he let the cat out of the bag that you guys have been going through Psalms recently. So this is just by the Lord's sovereignty that we should continue in Psalms. I hope you guys haven't done this one recently, because I guess he was saying you guys have been in the 80s. So we're just going to backtrack a few years here and get back to uh, Psalm 32. Uh, Before we do that, let me pray, and then we will dive into God's word together. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for your sovereign control over many things, in fact, all things. Lord, we praise your name that everything is not just under your control, but Father, you are good. And we praise your name that that goodness shows up in the truth of the gospel. And Father, that you have made the truth of the gospel known to us not just in our minds and intellectually, but, Father, personally, relationally, in our hearts, Lord. We thank you, Father, for your work on our behalf. And, Lord, I pray today it would stem out into joy, Father, that our knowledge and our belief of who you are and what you've done for us should result in an everlasting joy. We thank you for Psalm 32. We thank you for David's example of what devotion to you looks like. We thank you, Lord, that you are the everlasting, never-failing God who promises to satisfy us in every way, both now here, but then also for all eternity. So Lord, turn our hearts to you. Help us to confess the sin we need to confess. Help us, Lord, to trust you in the ways that we need to trust you. Help us to commit to your ways. And Lord, we pray, Father, you would do this for your glory, our benefit, and through the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was reading an article uh, about teenagers. And we were all once a teenager, or soon be a teenager. But this article came out because of a study that was done last year. And last year, uh, they're just going over teenage students, asking very deep foundational questions about the heart, about the perceptions of teenagers, how they look at the world, how they look at each other, how they look at uh, the way that history is moving forward to. And it came out that in that study, 44% of teens said that they are persistently sad or hopeless. Persistently sad or hopeless. In a sense, almost half of our teenagers here in America struggle with what the Bible would describe as despair. Happy Sunday morning. Uh, This is a fact for us living in this world today. And I don't think this is just a teenager problem. I think that this is an all of us problem, that we as humans living in a broken world with broken hearts, if left to our own devices, tend toward despair. The article goes on to say, what is the result of this despair found in teenagers? 
is reported to gains in eating disorders, depression, anxiety, self-harming behavior, isolation, and teen suicides. With all this, right, we see the destructiveness of despair lived out in our youngest. The article takes an interesting turn. It wasn't written from a Christian worldview. It wasn't trying to figure anything out. It was honestly just trying to say, if this is the trajectory that our teens are headed, if this is the trajectory that we're going to say our world is headed, then why is it? And he offers a few uh, helpful thoughts. First of all, increasing immorality. Could it be that just teens are so bad, they're just so devoted to doing what we would say is evil outside of God's instruction? Is that the result, or is that the thing that's pushing this despair? And actually, it goes on to say that teens are actually doing better now as far as immorality goes, evil, stuff like that. So it's not that. Could it just be teens being teenier, moodier, right? More dramatic, right? None of our teens here in this church are dramatic. None of them get moody whatsoever, right? No, it's not that either. Could it be social media? Social media in the teenagers' lives on a rise, right? Eight hours on average per day. That means for all the teenagers that do four hours, there's some teenager in America that does 12 hours, right? Could that be it? Maybe it's engaged parents down, right? More now than ever, we have more parents working outside the house, right? Engaged in their own devices instead of engaged with their kids. One more reason I'm so thankful to see your guys' representation of a church and the families of the church investing in their children. None of these, none of these are the real, um, the real instance behind this despair. It really is devotion. The root cause of this despair is a lacking devotion. And you think about what devotion is, it's a, it's a love, a, a loyalty, an enthusiasm after something. It boils down to a pursuit of something. And whatever it is that we are devoted to in this life, whether you're a teenager or not, that devotion is a quest for joy. It's a quest for the opposite of despair. It's a quest for satisfaction. It's a quest for contentment. It's a quest for completeness. And I think here is happening in this study is we're seeing teenagers who are devoting themselves to any number of things in this world and finally coming to realize that those things are shriveled up, they run dry, they can't satisfy. And so when whatever it is that they're devoted to doesn't produce what they're looking for, the only logical, the only heart-level result of that is despair. So whether you're a teen or not, we have to admit, we live in a broken world. Each one of us has a broken heart shot through by sin, and so therefore, we struggle with this day in and day out, the subject of joy. And we have to admit that we struggle with this because we struggle with devotion to God. To be loving toward him, to be loyal to him, to be enthusiastic about him. Thankfully, though, we have this great promise. And this is what we're looking at in Psalm chapter 32. We have this great promise that God does not shrivel up. He does not dry up. That if there is anything in all of existence and all of reality that if we set our devotion on would actually be able to satisfy us, give us the joy, complete us the way that we need to be completed, it would be God. And so David here, writing in Psalm 32, is going to give us 
the joy of what a right relationship with God brings us. But this does include devotion. It includes on our behalf that willingness, that love, that loyalty, that enthusiasm to pursue God in every way. So, look with me here in verse 1. We get these two beautiful verses. It says this, How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is a person who the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Four times here, David mentions the word or synonym of sin, transgression, sin, iniquity, deceitfulness. We know that this is the problem we all face, right? The same world that David lives in, the same world that we live in, one that is, again, shot through by transgression, right? Covered in sin, charged with iniquity, and cannot escape deceitfulness. This is the world that we live in. And if there was nothing else about this world, then joy would be totally absent. But David makes a bold claim here. Joy can be found. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Forgiven. Joy is this contentment and peaceful satisfaction. This is the good feeling you get when everything, when you have everything that you need and everything seems in order. When the house is in order, the kids are finally asleep in bed, all the chores are done, the house is clean, and you sit down for a coffee or a tea. That's contentment. That's satisfaction. Praise God. The project at work is done, and you know it's done right, and everybody above you and everybody below you agrees this is good work. That's joy. When you hand in that test at school, the one that you actually studied for, the one that you actually know you did well, and you actually know that you're going to get a good grade on, that's joy. Or maybe it's just simply family time, food, Christmas time, presents, whatever it must be. We experience joy when we know that we have everything that we need and everything around us is in the order it should be. And the key here to joy isn't manufacturing that perfection. It's not doing, saying, or having whatever we think we need. The only way this joy comes to sinful, broken people in a sinful, broken world is through God's and this makes total sense. It makes total sense because our greatest need is met in God. If our greatest need is to have a right relationship with God, now here and for all eternity, sin is the breaking, it's the rupturing, it's our retreat from who God is, it's our disobedience, it's our choice to know who God is, but to say, I'd rather pursue joy somewhere else. And that's all of our hearts. But God has instilled joy in the one who is forgiven. A right relationship with God through faith, through Jesus. But in order to get a better understanding of this forgiveness that God gives us through Jesus, we have to continue on through the psalm. So look at verse 3 with me. It says this, When I kept silence, now this is David talking about himself, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand, so he's talking about God's hand, was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer heat. David here is breaking under two things. The first is the knowledge and the consequences of his own sin. That's what verse 3 is talking about here. When I kept silent, my bones became brittle. 
I don't know if you've been in this spot before, but there's been sin, maybe secret sin in your heart that you knew was there, that you saw the consequences lived out in front of you, almost inescapably, and yet it kind of seemed like no one else around knew. That's what David is saying, the realization of the secret sin in his heart. Thankfully, it's not secret sin because God knows it's there. In verse 4, this other pressure upon him is God's hand, the conviction that drains him, that takes away that joy, that shows David that joy can't be found in this sin. It has to be found somewhere else. It has to be found somewhere else. So with David's own perception of his sin and the consequences of it and God's spirit-led conviction upon him, we get the beauty of verse 5. Look at this. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David gives up on his sin. This is one of the most amazing verses for knowing where joy comes from. Joy comes from repentance. Look at David's shift here. He goes from keeping silent with these breaking bones. He goes from having the heavy hand of God draining him like the summer heat. And he goes to confess his transgressions to the Lord and enjoy the forgiveness that God gives him, that removal of guilt from him. We, as broken people, sinful people, we go through the same process. We trade our joy in God for the pleasures of sin, those fleeting, destructive pleasures. We know we shouldn't look at that online, yet we try to wrestle joy from God's hand. Saying, Lord, I know your instruction isn't to look at that online, but I'm going to do it anyway because I believe that's my best shot at joy and satisfaction. We say to God, I know you want me to build others up with my words and not tear them down, but in this moment, Lord, I know what's best, and I will say that against another person. Lord, I know that you call me to be content in all the possessions that I have, not to steal, not to take, and yet, Father, this person has that. I really want that. Whatever it might be, too much time at work, so I'm going to steal that time back. I'm going to take what you've called me not to take. In each one of these ways, sin coaxes us into this partnership where we take the joy that God offers us in his son and we trade it for those fleeting, destructive pleasures of sin. We change joy, contentment, satisfaction for pleasure. This hollow fun, as you can say. The big question for us today is, have you traded your joy in God for sin's fleeting pleasures. Are you doing this now? Maybe are you trying to protect it? We see David here, maybe in a sense, protecting it, keeping quiet, not wanting to let anybody know about it. Are you protecting your sin in hopes that it will one day provide you more joy than what God promises you through the truth of his gospel? And the follow-up question is that, are you being crushed by the weight of your sin? What does David do here? If he really is going to give up on protecting his sin, if he really is going to relinquish himself to this heavy hand of God, then what does that look like? How can joy be restored? 
The first thing we see here in verse 5 is that he acknowledges his sin. The second thing we see is he confesses his sin. And the third thing we see is that he enjoys the forgiveness of God. This is repentance. If you've answered yes to either one of these questions, that you've been trading your joy in God for the fleeting pleasures of sin, and if you answered yes to, I am, fi- I am being crushed by the weight of my sin, then David tells us right here what it is we ought to do, which is to turn back to the Lord. Acknowledge your sin. Pray to the Lord. Say, Lord, I know what you've called me to do, but I also know what my darkest desire is, and then I've given into it repeatedly. But then just don't announce it. Ask for God's help. God is the one who gives us the Holy Spirit in order for our faithfulness to move forward, in order for us to even have a chance to be enabled for God's help. And then third, commit to his ways. In the help that the Lord promises you through the Holy Spirit, commit to living the life God has asked you to live, to not look at those things, to not say those things, to not take what we want. In each one of these ways, repentance really is the first step of joy. Now, I'm looking out at you guys, and I'm thankful that you invited me here. Uh, I will be honest, I don't know any of you guys. I know John and Zardo a little bit. We've met before. He's a great guy. Bearded. Actually, he shaved his beard, right? Is that pre-sabbatical? Is that like his big change? Um, But I don't know where your hearts are at. But the truth here, what the Holy Spirit tells us, knows exactly where your heart's at. So either you have not repented of your sin at all, and you have been struggling to find your joy in all the empty wells that this world offers you, then the passage here calls you to give yourself over to God in repentance and faith, to abandon those empty wells and turn to the one who will, for all eternity, satisfy you. But then the other campers, those of us who have repented of our sin and believed and would say we are saved by God's gift of faithful grace. And yet we still struggle with our broken hearts in this broken world. Turn back to the Lord. This requires devotion, of course, that love, loyalty, and enthusiasm for the Lord. We're never going to do this unless we're devoted to the Lord. And so it's helpful to look at the gospel and see that the Lord is actually devoted to us. In his fatherliness, he loves us, he's loyal to save us, and he's enthusiastic to do so. Just think about the truth of the gospel, that Jesus would leave heaven, the perfect place, to come live here, right? I mean, New Jersey's a great place, but he chose a different place. Right? And yet, he came, and he came purposefully to shed his blood, to show us his love, to help us understand the satisfaction, the salvation that we can have in him forever. The Lord's display of love shows us how empty those pursuits of this world are and how full of everlasting joy he is. The truth of the gospel helps us understand why verse 5 is needed in our lives regularly. So, instead of devoting yourself to sin, devote yourself to the Lord. His forgiveness produces joy in us. But that's actually the only thing, right? Even when we're living a good, faithful life, there's still devotion activities we can partake in. And that's what David gets into in verses 6 through 9. Look at this. Verse 6. Therefore, let Everyone who is faithful to pray 
or I'm sorry, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. The call here is, if you find yourself to be one of those forgiven, then your life ought to be marked by repentance and prayer. Why do we need to pray? Look at verse 6 again. When the great floodwaters come, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. The faithful one looks at God and says, I find my joy in you, but I also know that I am secure in you. These floodwaters here is David's way of saying practical concerns. Practical concerns. But then at the end of verse 7, this joyful shouts of deliverance, that deliverance is the spiritual concerns. We wrestle with these things day in and day out, the practical concerns of life, but then also our heart-level spiritual concerns of life. It is good news for us to know that God produces joy and protection in both the physical and the spiritual. He delivers us from both. And the one who is faithful, the one who says, I am devoted to the Lord, they're going to interact with God in the physical needs and those spiritual needs through prayer, trusting communication to the Lord, regularly talking through the day, acknowledging sin, asking for help, committing to the way, praying uh, scripture back to him. I just wonder today, are you faithful to pray regularly? Is this one of your aspects of regular joy? You're so satisfied by the Lord that prayer marks your days. It's this great promise from God that he is the one who is above all, that hides those who trust him, protecting them from trouble. We all need it, and thankfully, it's found in the Lord. But not just prayer as one of those regular aspects of devotion to the Lord, but look at verses 8 and 9 as well. 8 says this, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. So David kind of flips, uh, flips the narrative here, and now he's going to start talking for God. So David is, has witnessed this in his life, and now he's going to help the people who are reading Psalm 32 know what God does for them. I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel. The very opposite of that is verse 9. Don't be like a horse or a mule without understanding. That must be controlled with bit and bridle, or else it will not come near to you. So David sets up this choice here. In verse 8, he says, The Lord is willing, the Lord instructs, the Lord guides, the Lord gives wisdom, so that we would know what to do. Yet every aspect of our heart, we have to admit, says, I don't want to do that. I am a stubborn mule because of my sin. And God says, go left. I'm headed right. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. We need the truth of God's word, the truth that God shares with us to be that bit, to be that bridle. And again, thankfully, when we follow the Lord's instruction, that is joyous. Because what's the Lord doing when he's saying, please live, and I'm going to enable you to live a wise life? He's steering us away from sin's calamity. He's steering us away from these floodwaters. He's steering us away from the things that we will potentially need deliverance from. He's saying, my way is the best way. And those who are faithful will follow the Lord's instructions. They know what to do, and they know not what to do. But even that is part of the Lord's provision to give wisdom where we need wisdom, to help us not be such a mule day in and day out. I wonder, is this your relationship with God? Would you say you're more on the following wise side 
Or would you say that you're more like the horse than the mule, stubborn in your pursuit of things outside of God's bounds? The promise is clear. Psalm 32 makes it absolutely clear for us. True joy, true protection, true wisdom come to those who devote themselves to the Lord. True joy, true protection, true wisdom comes to those who devote themselves to the Lord. And we would probably say, especially here in verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, that we're often distracted from these things. Right? Try to think about the last time you had good, clear, crisp, long prayer time without a kid throwing coffee on you or your phone going off or somebody at work saying, why do you have your head bowed? Something like that. Right? It's rare. It's rare, and I would say probably, well, I could say my entire youth group says it's because I'm distracted. It's because I'm distracted. I'm just going to venture a guess that you're like my youth group in a sense, right? We get distracted. Distraction and devotion are actually the same issue. And here's a helpful example, right? The distracted driver, what are they devoted to? The phone. They're going to put to the side everybody else's safety. They're going to put to side the speed limit because they need to scroll through their Instagram, Facebook, whatever it is, and make sure that they are are loving, loyal, enthusiastic about what's on their phone. You can think about it this way, though. The devoted husband, not distracted by other women, but totally devoted to his wife. You see, in both senses, devotion and distraction are the same thing. Distraction is just your devotion lived out. So in a sense, we would know as Christians that we ought to pray, we ought to follow God's wisdom, and we ought to repent. And yet, something in our heart distracts us from that. It's not not an innocent distraction. What it is, is is the devotions of your heart being played out in real life. Those things that steal your Christian habits away, the prayer, the Bible study, the obedience, the repentance, those things are actually the top spot of your heart being displayed. It's what you're actually looking for, for joy and satisfaction. Devotion to the Lord requires discipline. Discipline. And if you guys are taking notes, I I encourage you to look at two separate passages here. I'm just going to sum them up real quickly for us. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 9, and then Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Both of these talk about what a disciplined life looks like. And it boils down to two things. The first is this. Putting aside every hindrance, putting aside every hindrance. There's general hindrances, like too much time on your phone, right? There's sports, TV, whatever it might be. There's good things that we just do too much of. But then the other side of the coin is that there's actual sin in our way, that we need to remove that sin. We might say we've got to put some more restraints on my cell phone time, right? My TV watching time, whatever it might be. But then there's actual sin that blocks our way as well. We need to put aside every hindrance. But then, once we clear the path in a sense, once we get sure that our racetrack is clear of all the hurdles that are standing in our way, then it's time to strive. And striving, as these two passages point out, is actually to the point of agony. It's actually, I am going to do whatever it takes to pursue godliness, to pursue God, to the point of agony, knowing that it is joy for me ahead. If you're struggling today with this disciplined devotion, I suggest you think about those two things. Am I removing the hindrances? Am I making sure my path to God is clear and to godliness? 
And then once it is clear, am I running as hard as I can? Am I pursuing the Lord as best as I can toward him? So, will you decide to be spiritually disciplined and find joy in the Lord? This is what David has done. And the conclusion of his psalm puts this in two clear camps. Look at verse 10. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. David sets up the choice. He said there's really only two outcomes here. For those of you who have been found outside of faith in God, outside of that love, loyalty, and enthusiasm for God, the only conclusion we can come up with is pain. Pain. Kind of look back at three, right? My bones have become brittle. I'm groaning all day long. The undevoted life only has one destination. That is this pain from wickedness. But the opposite of it is so gleamingly beautiful, right? It's just so overwhelmingly great that the opposite for the person who chooses to put their faith in the Lord and pursue him, to put aside all those hindrances and to devote them to strive after the Lord, listen to this, will have faithful love surrounding him. What an amazing promise. This isn't just a here and now promise, it's all eternity promise. That the Lord promises to have his faithful love, mercy, grace, activity, sovereignty, everything in love around us. So the conclusion then makes total sense. If this is true, if either one of those camps are the camps I'm going to pick, and the one of faithful love from the Father is so gleamingly beautiful, then look at verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. For the one who has put their faith in Jesus, gladness is the result. Gladness is the result. We have to be honest. It doesn't always feel like the result. It's not every day you wake up with that plastic Christian smile and say, today is perfect, and I absolutely love today. That's not going to be the case. But that peaceful satisfied, content, completeness in the Lord undergirds our lives because salvation is sure by God's surrounding love. And the result of this, it's not just I'm a content and my glass is full sort of joy. This is abounding, overflowing, lavished joy upon us. Because look at this, be glad in the Lord and rejoice. There's a consequence from this joy that we receive in the Lord, and that is worship, this rejoicing. Maybe we could just ask a simple question here. Is your life marked by this worship? Would you say the joy that the Lord has provided you in Jesus is overflowing into your life to produce this rejoicing? Look at the next part of verse 11, the righteous ones. To go from verse 3, where you're being broken by your sin, to now being counted as a righteous one, that is the fuel that helps us understand joy is found in the Lord. And again, he repeats it, shout for joy. He says, rejoice and then shout for joy, all you upright in heart. David goes from being broken by his sin, being squashed by the Lord's heavy hand of conviction upon him, to being stood upright. To the Lord saying, you are my son and daughter. And I'm standing you upright in what, the Lord, what I have done for you in Jesus. Be glad and rejoice in the Lord's work. If any of you lack true joy today, 
I ask you to consider your relationship with the Lord. What does your love, loyalty, and enthusiasm look like? Do you think that there is something that is more rewarding than this love that God promises to surround you with? Have you chosen to repent of whatever sin that you're struggling with? Have you chosen to seek out another member here at church to say, I need help with this sin. I just can't do it alone. Have you prayed for conviction and joy to invest in this disciplined life of devotion? Have you announced those distractions? Have you gone ahead and chosen to exercise your joy in this worshipful lifestyle that would even count announcing sin, repenting of it, as a work of love to the Lord? We have this great passage here today that encourages us that the Lord loves us and has done what is necessary for us to enjoy joy here and forevermore. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you. I can't say it enough. Thank you, Lord, for the work that you've done through Christ on our behalf. We did not deserve it. Lord, you did it. It shows that you love us, Father. So, Father, we ask in your grace, help us to be devoted to you. And Lord, do not backtrack on this promise of joy. Instead, Lord, help us to understand over and over and over again to deeper depths what you have done to forgive us of the sin we actively cause in you. I pray if there's anybody here who lacks joy and yet is still devoted to you, Father, encourage them that their pursuit of you, despite that pain, despite maybe the feeling of brittle, broken bones, Lord, that the quest for joy through you is the best that they could pursue. Father, these are things that we will not do on our own. These are things that our broken heart will not do on our own. So, Father, we need your power in us through the Spirit to do this work. So, Father, we trust you, we rely on you, and we ask these things.